Hey everybody, welcome to the first episode of a new podcast that we're launching here today called TBD To Be Determined, a podcast that focuses on classic science fiction short stories. Uh, yes, I'm Daniel Cam. The person you just heard was Bill Williamson, and although we are by no means experts in the field of science fiction, I know I at least have been reading it and been watching it for you know, probably at least 40 years now. I can remember it as, as far back as I can remember, which you know, is pretty good on some of my good days. <laughs> yeah, Bill, what's, what, what do you think of as, in terms of science fiction? What is it that got you sort of interested in this field and, and kind of led you to think about doing this kind of podcast? Well, like Dan said, uh, he's, he's not a scholar of sci-fi. I'm not a scholar of sci-fi. Neither one of us is even a literary scholar of any kind. Uh, but we are both fans of of sci-fi and I think I probably remember more science fiction from television and film in the earliest of encounters with it but I've been a reader for a really long time and I I remember I think the very first sci-fi novel that I ever read was a Paul Anderson novel called The High Crusade where aliens land on ancient earth at the time of the Crusades, and the English army charges their horses onto the onto the rocket, and winds up going out into out into space, and it's a really weird clash of like historical fiction, fantasy, and sci-fi. And I was a big fantasy reader. That's that's where I really really started, like Lord of the Rings and stuff like that. And so by Various associations, I crept into sci-fi through, like I said, films, comic books, and then eventually novels and short stories. Yeah, I mean, you're you're absolutely right in that, you know, I'm pretty sure that my first exposure to science fiction was Star Trek, you know, the, the original series, which yeah. at the time was, you know, in its first set of reruns or second set of reruns. And I think they had the animated series on. And then, of course, we had you know, Star Wars and Battlestar Galactica and Buck Rogers and all those, you know, late 70s TV shows. Space but, 1999. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I hated that show, actually, when <laughs> I was a kid. I just couldn't understand it. But, I mean, I had all the Star Trek, you know, novels and books that went along with the series and the screenplays and the photo oh, yeah. novels. And, but, I mean, I, I think probably the earliest science fiction I remember that really made an impression on me was reading um, Isaac Asimov's Foundation trilogy, because that was probably the first time I was introduced to the whole idea of a space opera, right? The fact right. that you can have these sort of long, sweeping arcs of time and these, you know, long series of character development. And I mean, I think I probably still have the books. I've got... <laughs> books up in my library probably going on you know 40 50 years old now i have my original copies of the c.s lewis space trilogy oh yeah the out of the silent planet and paralandra yes exactly yeah i just watched a documentary on c.s lewis last night as a matter of fact those books my copies of those books probably go back to somewhere in the 1970s Probably, you know, 77, 78, and that's probably where, where all mine go back to as well. You know, it's interesting that something like the Sentinel that we'll be talking about today is probably one of the 
earlier films that I saw, although I was trying to remember what would have been the earliest movie that was sci-fi, might actually be something like, well, The Planet of the Apes, where I first started thinking of it as sci-fi. Now that said, Saturday morning or Sunday morning, I forget which, one of the TV stations used to show all kinds of old B-movies, and and that included a lot of those black and white science fiction films like The Blob. You know, so they 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 you know, oh, go yeah. over into monsters. The Martians movies. are here to take your women or That's something right. like that, where they're like people dressed up in rubber alien suits and tentacles. And some of them are horribly, horribly bad, but they're also quite entertaining. Oh, yeah. Of course, you know, MST3K has revitalized a lot of that. Exactly. That's why Mystery Science three <laughs> why MST3K came along just to poke fun at all those things. So, you know, needless to say, both of us have been around the genre for a very long time. We've both tried our hands at writing and, uh, in, in, you know, neither one of us is a, is a published author when it comes to short stories or, or novels or anything like that. But, you know, those are things that, that intrigue us, that, you know, get us talking, get us excited to, to watch a movie or read a book or, or grab a short story collection. We like prowling the used bookstores for old classics. And, and you know the 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 series here is going to focus on the stuff that really got everybody going, those early things from, I don't know if we'll talk about H.G. Wells, but we could go as far back as something like H.G. Wells or you know Sherlock Holmes is recognized by some people as actually one of the early pieces of science fiction because of the detective work that he does. Yeah, like you said, we're going to be focusing primarily on what's kind of considered the golden age of science fiction, you know, third or 40s, 50s and 60s, although we're definitely going to probably stray into, you know, maybe earlier than that, maybe later than that depending on the subject matter. And the goal is to try to get a large variety of authors, right? Some authors you've probably heard of, some you may never have heard of and maybe cover a few authors that you wouldn't even think are associated with science fiction. Right, and so although today is one where, you know, The Sentinel is a pretty well-known story, it's the inspiration for 2001, A Space Odyssey, for example, but not all of the stories that we pick are going to be ones that everybody has talked about before, that anybody has talked about before, maybe, um, and, and they're not necessarily going to be the ones that would, you know, the, the, you would be the first ones you'd think of to represent some of the authors that we talk about, but, you know, therein lies some of the fun, is that a lot of these people were really prolific, and they wrote a really incredible range of stuff. And, and, and there are going to be some that, that I, I know I'll be discovering for the first time, because as we've started to pull together a list of possibilities, there, there's stories on there that I have not yet read. Sure. Yeah. And it's and one of the things that we're probably going to be pointing out is there's a lot of differences between early science fiction and modern day science fiction, right? I mean, if you look at some of the real, at the early stuff, Especially, well, Arthur C. Clarke is one, actually. He wrote another series um, called Rendezvous with Rama. And I think the first one he published was something like in 1970 or 71. And then around the late 90s, they wrote a, a series of sequels to it. And the differences between the writing from then and now are just amazing. I mean, early science fiction, for the most part, there was no character development, right? The characters were just kind of there so they could witness the really cool science thing that was going on, right? And if you look at the differences between the writing then and now, you know, probably that the, as I said, the sequel to Rama, or the sequel to Rendezvous with Rama, which is entitled Rama 2, you know, the first hundred pages are just character development. 
And that's how science fiction went. You know, that's probably the difference between science fiction back in the day and how it is today is the we focus a lot more on character development instead of the sort of hard science fiction. You know, there's a lot of stories from early science fiction that are that that rely on a really, really simplistic hook or a pun or something like that, or or there's one weird little gadget or one weird little, you know, scientific something or other anomaly that happens that drives all of the action. Like I said, there's not a lot of character development. There may not even be a lot of dialogue. Some of them are very, very, very short. Some of them take a long time to say very little. But again, they're the roots of what we think of as contemporary sci-fi. And um, at some point, uh, we'll have to bring it up in one of the episodes. There's a, there's a woman who wrote a list of all of the plots. There are like 17 different plots or 13 different plots that make up all of science fiction. And, you know, that'd be an interesting thing to maybe even focus in on for an episode at some point is, you know, to talk about what are those plots that, that make up everything in sci-fi. You know what? It, it's really going to bug me if I can't figure this out. So hold on for a second while I look at this. There it is. Okay, so it, it's Claire Winger Harris who in 1931 wrote an article called The 16 Possible Science Fiction Plots. Yeah, I, I think there's similar, th- you know, similar statements have been made about movies too. There's oh, like yeah. 10 or 15 story arcs for for all movies and all stories. The, the person who leaves home and encounters something, right? The stranger in town and a few other ones. But yeah, getting back to, you know, the differences. Well, one of the things that you'll find out very quickly in reading early science fiction is there's some things you're going to see in there that you're like, oh, my God, it's so dated. It's <laughs> it's almost painful in some ways to read, especially some of the treatment of, of different characters or different genders in the early 40s, 50s and 60s is far different than it is today. So, you know, one of the things we'll, we'll probably focus on a little bit is, you know, what what does, you know, detract from some of these stories? What kind of dates it? What kind of sets it in a particular time period? And we'll do our best to to point those things out. But keep in mind, this isn't a reason you shouldn't not read the stories, right? Oh, no. They, they still have something to say. At least we think they have something to say about modern society and, and the things we're doing nowadays. Well, and the people that we've talked about covering and, and the, the, the list of stories that we've come up with here at the beginning of this whole venture are all stories and all authors that have had a significant influence on other authors, on filmmakers, on thinkers beyond the realm of fiction altogether. And so science fiction is one of those things that it is popular in part because it has captured the popular imagination. You know, it, it strikes a chord with our sense of innovation and creativity and our sense of, of ingenuity and, you know, that sort of plucky character who's going to save the day, you know, by, by some sort of human engagement or whatever the case may be you know but that that kind of stuff it all comes from somewhere and all of those all of those stories have roots and that's what we wanted to to look back at is where do some of these ideas come from that are the long-lasting ideas that that people are still playing out right and the story that we're going to talk about is uh as you just said it's the sentinel uh written by arthur c Clarke back in the early 50s and Arthur C. Clarke, of course, is one of the great authors of science fiction. If anybody who knows anything about early science fiction will find Arthur C. Clarke references all over the place. Uh, you know, we, we're not going to go into a huge you know, biography of him or, I mean, there's been plenty of books written about him and by him. 
But instead, we're going to focus more on the story itself and talk about why we think the Sentinel is a good representation of the type of stories we want to cover in this series. Yeah, and unlike a, a podcast that might cover contemporary film where people would you know, be yelling spoiler alert, we're not going to worry about those kind of things. You know, we'll, we'll wander through some discussion of the plot. We'll wander through some discussion of the characters. We'll talk about where we think the story, you know, what kind of what kind of lasting influences is had and, you know, what similar ideas have come up in different places. If you've read a story before you listen to an episode, fantastic. You know, jump in and listen and, and, and you know, think about whether or not we're on the same wavelength as you. If you've never read it, you know, listen or don't listen until you've you've read it you know that's up to you entirely but i don't know when i when i know what's going on in these stories it doesn't mess it up for me you know I, I i'm not somebody who has to worry all that much about about things like spoiler alerts you know yeah some of them have a goofy little twist at the end or a surprise ending of some sort but i don't know that it necessarily takes away from the the enjoyment of reading them if you know a little bit about it going in and let's be fair, you can read any of these stories in a lot less time than it's going to take to listen to this podcast. Oh, yeah. So you, of course, can determine what the best use of your time. And, well, we hope it's both. That's right. So so getting into The Sentinel, you know, it's a, it's a like I said, it's an early science fiction story in the early 50s. It's, it's set on the moon. It is set specifically in a place called Mare Crisium, which is also known as the Sea of Crises. And it is set in the... The far future year of 1996, like we said, you're going to run into some things in these stories where you know they're dated, and, and this is one of the ways you do it is authors who reference specific dates in their stories. The collection that I have of, of Clark short stories that I was reading this out of, he pokes fun at himself for you know setting it in 1996 and that we're cruising across the Mercurium at that point. He says, yeah, I got that part wrong, but that's okay. <laughs> Well, there's probably other things they got wrong, too. But so anyway, you got these people. They're up there on the moon. They're a, they are a ground-based exploratory mission. They've got a bunch of people and vehicles and little, like, lunar tractors and rockets and things. And they're cruising around the moon. You know, we, meet, we meet the main guy. Actually, his name's Wilson, but they don't tell us that until later. He's, he's kind of the first-person narrator of the whole story. And he is the expedition's selenologist. So if you know what a selenologist is, it's basically a lunar geologist because, you know, Selene is, is Greek for the goddess of the moon and, you know, Luna is the Roman goddess of the moon. And apparently when we looked at geology, we like the Greeks better than the Romans. And there are only, other, there are only two other characters, one who doesn't even rate a name, um, but one is Lewis Garnett, who is Wilson's assistant. And the other one is just known, he's, he's just the driver. The guy who oh, yeah, stays the driver back. of the van. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and so they're they're in this. You know, it, it sounds sort of like a, a personnel carrier, but not equipped for wartime. It's 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 a mobile lab that they're driving across the the floor of the the sea of crisis. Yep, and they're out there, you know, basically exploring. They're setting down. I guess they call them guidance markers, and they're picking up rocks and studying them. You know, the first thing you get out of the story, and the first 80% of the story is really all just stage setting yeah. when you get down to it. What what they start doing is is he's talking about the moon in this very folksy, very familiar sense, kind of like, yeah, we've been doing this forever, right? He, he talks about the age of the moon, and 
He's like, yeah, there's nothing hazardous. There's nothing even really exciting about being here. He makes being on the moon about as exciting as, you know, working a road construction crew somewhere here on Earth. We're just, you know, cruising along. You got the guy in his spacesuit flipping the sign from slow to stop. And that's how exciting being on the moon is. Yeah, it sets it up so that lunar exploration has become mundane, if you want to put it that way. I think he makes reference to the fact that they've been on the moon exploring for 20 years. No one has gone as far out into the Sea of Crisis as they are right now. You know, they've, they've explored a lot of other areas on the moon, and they've discovered certain, you know, qualities and characteristics about it, giant fissures and some rudimentary plant life and so on. And they refer to this well, th- this knowledge that would that would you know contradict what we know about the moon now, but that suggests that once upon a time there were great oceans on the moon, and that the crust cracked open, and the 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 water retreated into the into the body of the moon. Of course, that never happened, but on the story, it did. Yeah, and that one of the things you see about Clark is he is such a good writer of prose, right? He's a very descriptive writer, and he is very evocative of the scenes. And he uses phrases, it's almost poetic, right? He says, when life was beginning on Earth, it was already dying here. And he talks about how the oceans were sinking into their graves, taking with them the hope and morning promise of a world. And he talks about the skies that are blacker than a winter midnight. He's just a really good writer when it comes to describing the scenes and, and setting the stage for where you are. And one of the things you'll you'll get in his writing is he keeps kind of leading the reader toward this idea of the great age of the moon. He talks about the formation of the solar system and the formation of the moon. And he tries to get the reader to think in these very long scale terms of hundreds of thousands or millions of years. And even though you're on the moon exploring it, you're just at the very, very tail end of a whole lot of time. Yeah. So even though it is relatively new to us, He's trying to talk about how the universe, of course, is operating on a scale where humans are just a blip in time. But even though we're just a blip, he wants to make it make it very clear that, you know, we are we are doing the same things that Earth people always do. We've gotten up to the moon. We're going to explore. We're going to cook our breakfast. One of the really cool things in this story is he describes this whole scene where where he's cooking breakfast for the crew. Right? They've been cruising across the moon doing their thing, doing their little exploration. And he he wakes up and says, oh, yeah, I guess somebody's got to cook breakfast. It's going to be me. He gets out his pots and pans, I guess. And, and he starts cooking and sets this whole scene that's it's very homey. It's very familiar and tries to emphasize, again, how mundane and how we've gotten to the moon. And it's basically just like being on Earth, which you know, if you imagine the fact that this was written in 1951, it's you know 18 years before we landed on the moon or did anything like that, for, for Clark to be in a position where he's gone way beyond this and has said, you know, I'm envisioning a future where we've been on the moon so long, it's just something to do. You know, to have that mindset in 1951, to me, is just kind of amazing as an author, where... You've got a lot of other people talking about science fiction again, like the bug-eyed aliens kidnapping Earth women in their green tentacles. You've got Arthur C. Clarke, who takes a completely different tact and a completely you know, different way of describing science fiction. There's a scene where he is establishing those routines or, or you know, continuing the explanation of the, those routines where he says, we kept Earth time aboard the tractor and precisely at 2,200 hours, 
or the final radio message would be sent out to base and we could close down for the day. And then he talks about them getting up again in the morning. He says, um, then one of us would prepare breakfast. There would be a great buzzing of electric shavers and someone would switch on the shortwave radio from Earth. Indeed, when the smell of frying bacon began to fill the cabin, it was sometimes hard to believe that we were not back on our own world. Everything was so normal and so homey, apart from the feeling of decreased weight and the supernatural slowness with which objects fell. Yep, so when you flip your eggs, apparently they fall one-sixth Earth gravity, but that's really the only difference. Well, there's one such morning where he's the one cooking, as you just made reference to a moment ago, and he says, as I stood by the frying pan waiting for the sausages to brown, I let my gaze wander idly over the mountain walls, which covered the whole of the southern horizon, marching out of sight to the east and west below the curve of the moon. And as he's looking up, he catches this glint of light high up on the side of the mountain, somewhere up on this little plateau, and he just stares at it. And this is the turning point in the story. This is the moment where we go from the mundane and we begin drifting toward something that is less so. Right, and you get one of the one of the most amusing phrases in the whole story, right? Where he's he's staring at this faraway object and he's lost in study, right? He's like cooking his breakfast. And what was the phrase about he... Yeah, he says, I stared for a long time at that glittering enigma, straining my eyes into space until presently a smell of burning from the galley told me that our breakfast sausages had made their quarter million mile journey in vain. Which is just, to me, very amusing. I just imagine... Uh, yeah, we're going to stop at the grocery store and pick up some Jimmy Deans because we're going <laughs> to the moon, right? It's like, who thinks we're going to be cooking breakfast sausages on the moon? So, And they've laid in enough of, uh, enough of that kind of stuff for a, a very long trip to the moon besides. So, yeah, that, that, it is just amusing. Yeah, instead of like, drinking, you know, tang and powdered pasta or whatever it is they actually eat up on the moon, we've got breakfast sausages and eggs and chicken and who knows what else. Maybe they got a, you know side of beef stuffed in one of these vehicles. Moon steaks. There you go. So the sunlight heliographs, which just means, you know, it winks Reflecting. at him. Yeah. And and it sparks this debate where some of them just want to keep going. They're like, ah, there's nothing to see. Come on. It's the moon. Yeah, it's the moon. We know what's here. There's nothing here. There's a few plants that are all dead and you know nothing could possibly exist that could have made a reflective object. So you're just wasting your time. It's a meteor hit a piece of rock and it cracked yeah. and there's just a nice glistening plane. So let it be. But, you know, Wilson, of course, you know, being the obstinate and stubborn or maybe just bored type says, you know what, let's just go look at it anyway. And you get the impression that these guys have, they're looking for something to do, right? If, if truly all they're doing is running around, picking up rocks and setting out markers, they're like, you know, we need something to break up the routine. So he's like, you know what, there might be nothing there. There's probably nothing there, but... What the hell? I'm going to go look anyway. We get a reference in the conversation that Wilson is someone who is noted earlier in his career for being one of the first people to ever climb a mountain on the moon. So, like, that is something that he sees as a cool thing, you know, part that, that fulfills a, a, some of his sense of adventure. And Lewis Garnet says, yo, somebody's got to go along with you and make sure that you don't break your neck. The guy who drives the bus, he's like, yeah. You guys go have fun. I'm going to sit back here and crack a beer. Yeah, you get the idea that the, the driver, he's just like, oh, I'm going to kick back and take my you know union-mandated break. I'm going to probably smoke a cigarette since it's 1951 and hang out in the van while you guys go climb this mountain. 
And that's exactly what they do. They, they figure it's going to take them a couple days to climb the mountain because it's so tall. But they gear up and, and they begin the ascent. And remember, it's on the moon, so they're just kind of pulling themselves up the rock. They're, I forget what the what the weight difference is. It makes reference to it a few times in the story. One-sixth Earth gravity. Yeah, there you go. So it's a relatively easy climb compared to what it would be on Earth, but it's a pretty high height. It's, what, 12,000 feet or something that they're going to be climbing. So it does take them a while, and it is some exertion. They, they take a couple breaks along the way that they make reference to. But sooner or later, they get all the way to the top, and the ledge is right there in front of them, and Lewis is like, hey, I can do it. And, of course, Wilson's like, dude, I'm the senior guy here. It, it's it's my prerogative. And, of course, you know, the whole time they're still trying to reinforce that the odds are pretty good. There's absolutely nothing there. So when they get to the top, you get the twist, right? Because all these good early science fiction stories end up with a twist. And this one is they get to the top, they ascend the mountain, and it's a plateau. And what do they see? They see this glittering pyramidal structure at the top of this mountain on the flat plateau, clearly something that is artificial that no one was expecting to see. Wilson, of course, he, he looks at it, and you get the idea that Wilson really likes the moon, right? He's you know climbed it, he's been around, he just dotes on the idea that the moon had this long and distant past compared to the Earth, and he immediately jumps to the conclusion, he's like, oh my God, this proves that there must have been intelligent life or advanced life on the moon. There must have been a civilization here 100 million years ago. And then he launches into this whole mental debate about what, why did they build this? What kind of shrine could this be? Is it a temple? What did the moon people you know, want to convey by building this structure? And kind of goes off on this little tangent of, of what he believes the purpose of the structure is. And of course, it's all predicated on there being an, uh, a civilization, well, that, that there, there's a species to begin with that evolves on the moon in parallel somehow to men or, well, human beings evolving on Earth. And he makes comparisons in his head to ancient Egypt, you know, with the pyramidal shape and so on. But slowly, ever so slowly, he comes around to the conclusion that, no, that really must not be right. Yeah, and the reason he figures that out is they start investigating the pyramid and they notice that it's actually protected by a force field. There's no evidence of micrometeorites impacting around it. It is basically, you know, brand new off the production line. And he realizes that this is something, he's looking at something that's far in advance of any technology that humans could have ever had, or even, you know, people at the moon probably could have ever had. And obviously there's no other traces of an advanced civilization there. This is the only thing and he realizes, wait, you know, uh, that my whole line of thinking is wrong. I've got to start thinking about this in a whole different light. And then this is a point in the story where we've taken a huge part of the story. Well, not that the story is that long, but the, 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 the biggest chunk of the story has been the setup, this moment. And then we go into this, like, really big acceleration. And, and we have 20 years pass in... Well, a few paragraphs really is what it comes down to. But from the discovery, we go into the explanation of their attempts to figure out what it is, their attempts to get access to it, and, and then the slow dawning realization of what it is that they have discovered. Yeah, you look at this 
you know, the way they treat the pyramid when they first find it, and Wilson said, you know, Wilson comes to the conclusion that it must be an alien structure and, and realizes it must have been placed somewhere in the very, very distant past. You know, Clark has already been trying to lead the reader into this whole idea of thinking on big time scales, right? A hundred million years or for the moon to form or, or perhaps even more. And they, they find out that after 20 years of analyzing this, that it's it's actually far older than they ever anticipated. It's it's not only millions of years, it's billions of years old, and that it was placed there, you know, before there were even oceans on Earth. And he tries to get the readers to conceptualize a time scale far, far greater than he's already presented to them. Well, and yeah, you just made reference to how it takes them twenty years to figure this out. So they study this thing for a very long time. In fact, there's a passage where it says it has taken us 20 years to crack that invisible shield and to reach the machine inside those crystal walls. What we could not understand, we broke at last with the savage might of atomic power and now have seen the fragments of the lovely glittering thing that I found up there on the mountain. So it takes them 20 years just to get into the thing after it's been sitting there for untold millions of years. And doesn't that just describe like humans to a T? It's like... <laughs> Okay, we don't understand this thing, so what are we going to do? Let's just beat on it with a bigger and bigger hammer until we break it. And he continues on a little bit after that. He says, The mystery haunts us all the more now that the other planets have been reached, and we know that only Earth has ever been the home of intelligent life. Nor could any lost civilization of of our own world have built that machine, for the thickness of the meteoric dust on the plateau has enabled us to measure its age. It was set there upon its mountain before life had emerged from the seas on Earth. You just made reference to that, but that's one of the passages where he's he's really great at playing out those those slow dawning realizations. Yep, and then and then you see Wilson getting into like, well, we know it's here. We know we broke it. What was it placed here for? You know, he goes through a few options, but then he basically talks about how any race that was this old, you know, again, we're talking billions of years old. It must have been one of the very early races in the universe. And and being so early, they were probably maybe the only race that was out there. And being the only race, they're just looking for some other intelligent life to, I guess, just to talk to. They're isolated. They're lonely. They want, you know, somebody else. And he thinks that, well, maybe this is just one of maybe thousands or millions of machines that were left around the universe, just waiting for intelligent life to to find it. And he makes the assumption that the aliens, as advanced as they were and traveling through the universe as, as they must have been, that they saw the potential for life to evolve in a significant way on Earth. And so then he muses about how, rather than placing something on Earth for people to find as soon as they start walking around, they place it on the moon because it's right there, but it's something, well, it's a location that would require a certain level of development. We've got to be able to get past the earth, you know, beyond our own gravity well. Yeah, you've, you've developed space travel, you've developed atomic energy. If you've got those two things under control and you've gotten to the moon, then maybe we're gonna, then maybe you're an interesting race to come look at, basically is what it boils down to. And so then he begins to think, hmm, So we broke this thing after 20 years. It's been sitting here for a long time, and that's where he begins to realize that it was a sentinel specifically. Yeah, he's in his wait a second here. What did we just do mode? Right, and and he begins, well, he begins to potentially fear the worst. 
says, I can never look now at the Milky Way without wondering from which of those banked clouds of stars the emissaries are coming. If you will pardon so commonplace a simile, we have broken the glass of the fire alarm and have nothing left to do but wait. I do not think that we will have to wait for long. And if that's not a good ominous final line for a short story, I don't know what is. And it's awesome because there's just so much that is packed into those last three or four pages of the story. I mean, the whole thing's, what, maybe 10, 12 pages long. It's not a long story. Oh, yeah, yeah. And like we said, 80% of it is just the stage setting, the lead up to these final few pages where he unveils this grand arc of time and the implications of intelligent life, you know, or the implications of us now being exposed to other forces in the universe or alerting other forces in the universe that we exist. And what could that possibly mean? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it unknown? I mean, he has this other very cool line where he talks about something to the effect of if they're out there, they must be very old and the old are often insanely jealous of the young which is it's a really interesting phrase where he pulls out jealousy as a reason why the aliens might want to well, apparently do bad things, exterminate us or you know who knows what. We, but he phrases it in, in that way where you think, wow, why would an old race be jealous of humans? I, I don't even know how to wrap my head around that. And of course, the whole story then revolves around one of the great questions of all science fiction, which is if there are aliens out there, what are they like and what are their motives? What are they going to be interested in when it comes to human beings, if they're interested in us at all? Sure. And of course, you know, in the last 71 years, right, since this story was published, there have been, you know, hundreds and thousands of stories and books and movies with all sorts of outcomes to what those motives are. You know, do they want to eat us? Do they want to you know, feed us? Do they want to give us our knowledge? Do they want to steal our genetic code or take our water or or what, right? You know, there's, there's just so many TV and films that talk about, you know, the alien invasion, you know, even going back to the War of the Worlds, you know, where the, the aliens are, why, do you remember why the aliens came to us in War of the Worlds? Where they, their race was dying, right? And they came to Earth because they needed to revitalize themselves or something like that? I don't remember if it was ever explained. I, I actually just watched the remake of the War of the Worlds, the the one from gosh, whatever year it was, the one with Tom Cruise, but um, it takes some liberties with the original story. It's been a while since I've read either H.G. Wells' version or seen the the original black and white film. Yeah, of course, most stories that are action oriented and science fiction oriented almost inevitably end in war. I mean, you think of like Independence Day. Which, to this day, I, I really can't figure out what the alien motivation is to come along and just blow stuff up. <laughs> right. It's never really explained. They just kind of show up and they're like, oh, let's blow a bunch of stuff up. Which, according to the producer, is exactly what aliens are supposed to do because it makes for a great movie. Well, and you've got various ones where they decide to, you know, to basically turn us into slaves or into, well, a food source. So what Battlefield Earth and Invasion of the Body Snatchers... Um, v, that old television series from, was that the, was that the 80s? Uh, they actually did a remake of it, I think, in the oh, yeah, that's early right. 2000s. But yeah, the original one, I think, was the late 80s. Well, and one that goes in a completely different direction, which I always loved that about it, is uh, the film Contact that was written from the Carl Sagan novel, 
where yeah, you made Foster. reference. Yeah, there you go. And and you you made reference to aliens coming to share their wealth of knowledge with us, and and contact is is about them sending us the plans to a space, well, to a yeah, I guess a spacecraft that's going to allow us to travel through a wormhole to their part of the universe and connect with them. Yep, and then you have the more recent movie, The Arrival, where again they're actually here to share our knowledge. But those again are relatively recent, almost you know invariably in the. 60s and 70s and 80s, it was the typical beat the drums to war. You know, think of Starship Troopers, right? (laughs) Or not. (laughs) Yeah, or not. (laughs) There is some science fiction probably worth forgetting. Yeah, that 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 is one where they have they have spun so many movies out of that, and none of them really are up to up to the quality of the novel. But then the novel itself is one of Heinlein's works that is not necessarily so much celebrated as just yep he wrote it yeah and and there's actually some philosophers who've looked at uh starship troopers and tried to find some some meaning in like the uh authoritarian bent of the society and the militaristic structure of the society and and they they hold it up as kind of a mirror to american society and where they think we're headed so but that's a whole other discussion for a whole different podcast yeah, I'm sure that we'll do something from Heinlein. I mean, he's he's certainly one of the major players in early sci-fi, but we probably won't be doing Starship Troopers, given that that's a novel-length exploration. That is very true. I mean, it does kind of make you wonder, if something like this happened today, right? Let's just say that, you know, we or the Chinese or somebody, whoever's going back to the moon, they keep saying we're going to go back, but no one ever seems to go there. You know, if we actually did go back and we did find something on the moon, like, what would we do? Would would this be the inevitable result? Would we try to break it open and, you know, kind of do the same thing we did in 1951? And do we think the mindset of society is still the same where we would just kind of, br- you know, hack on it and break it open and see what happens? Or do you think we've evolved any in our thinking since then? <laughs> I don't think that we have evolved. I would I would actually make the argument that we're probably even more arrogant, and in part because of all of the sci-fi that we've experienced over the years. Now we think we know how to deal with aliens, and we think that we know that we could just kick their ass any time that they, you know, come wandering in our neighborhood. Yeah, not only that, but you'd have probably factions screaming that the alien artifact doesn't exist, or it was some kind of false flag operation planted by some other country. Or, you know, it's some kind of representation of a religious figure. God only knows how it would be portrayed across social media and across, you know, news organizations around the world. If we were even smart enough to recognize that it was alien to begin with. Yeah, you know, I think it's safe to say that Clark wrote a story that is certainly contemporary, or at least still relevant to contemporary politics and culture and writers and so on. He's obviously inspired a whole lot of people, a whole lot of filmmakers and writers and thinkers. So let's let's bring it back a little bit to uh, Clark as a writer. Yeah, we, I think we mentioned earlier in the podcast that one of the things we were going to explore a little bit is what kind of dates these stories? What are the kind of things that, as a reader, you, you're going to have to gloss over? Well, for example, we've already talked about how he made fun of the story being set in 1996 because when he wrote it in 51, that was a heck of a long time in the future, and he thought he was safe to set it there. Well, I mean, in 1951, he wasn't making fun of it. Oh, no, not at all. You know, it, like like I said, you know, then he thought he had cast it far enough in the future that certainly by then we'll have, we'll have 
you know, been to the moon and it'll be ho-hum. I see. So, yeah, the story being set in 1996, you know, he recognizes it as a bad idea. You know, we obviously recognize it as being a bad idea. You know, the closest thing we have to, you know, something momentous happening in 1996 in the world of space is Space Jam, right? Where the Looney Tunes characters try to (laughs) kidnap Michael Jordan and make him play in an alternate dimension. So that's how far as a species we got in 1996. But if you look at some of the other things, you know, we, we kind of mentioned the whole, you know, hominess of the the little you know van they're traveling in and the fact that they're, you know, they've got their breakfast sausages and their fry pans and all the stuff that we their know. Their electric just, shavers. Just is not how exploration happens on the moon. And even though, you know, he's he's trying to to write this down and, and present it as, yep, the moon is just normal and humdrum. You know, today you look at it and you're like, uh, no, that, that just wouldn't happen. And then you kind of look at some of the things I think you mentioned earlier, the whole Earth-Moon system formation, the fact that, no, there were never any oceans on the moon. No, there were never any plants on the moon. And even though Clark writes in this very you know poetic and lyrical way about it, yeah, none of it from a geological or, or sorry, selenological standpoint. There you go. I guess I have to use the right terminology. None of that is anywhere close to what actually happened. Yeah, but you know we're going to be talking about stories inevitably where Mars and Venus have been colonized or where there's even Martians and Venusians that we have begun to interact with. And it's this whole notion that if there can be life on Earth, there must be life scattered throughout our entire solar system. And, and it, it could, could always have been that way. And so very much, you know, that, that's in line with that, that thinking where the moon is just an extension of the Earth or, or that it's another celestial body where why couldn't there have been life on the moon? Sure. And of course, it made sense back then when we didn't really know. Right. So, you know, again, Clark was a product of his time, a product of the science he had available to him. So, you know, it is what it is. You know, the one thing I actually find kind of amusing is the the whole reference to atomic power, because this is another thing that crops up over and over again in early science fiction, that atomic power will just solve everything. And in this particular story, he says, that we, you know, we managed to break the machine using this "quote unquote" savage might of atomic power, which just solves everything. <laughs> you know, we know nowadays that atomic power is a little more complicated than they made it out to be in the you know 1950s and 60s. And and it is used as a symbol of all of our incredible and staggering scientific achievements. Which, not taking anything away from the incredible scientific achievement that it is. But it is not on par with the level of, I don't know, godhood or sanctity or whatever you want to call it, that early science fiction authors put us on for having achieved it. Well, it was sanctity back in uh, the Planet of the Apes days, right? Didn't they worship the Omega bomb or something like that? So, Yeah, that was like one of the later of the Return of the Planet of the Apes or Battle for the Planet of the Apes or something like that. It It was like the third or fourth film in that series. So, so anyway, atomic power ended up not being all it was cracked up to be back in the 40s and 50s. You know, we didn't have infinitely free and cheap electricity that was just solved all the world's problems. And we're not wearing, you know, atomic pen knives and pocket watches. Nobody's carrying lightsabers. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> we don't even have blasters yet. I mean, we've got pistols, but that's not quite the same. So what do you think, Dan? What do, well, what do we think about Arthur C. Clarke's The Sentinel? Again, you know, we're not going to review stories that we deliberately think are bad. So, of course, I'm going to say it's a good story. 
and certainly, again, given all the different things that inspired, you know, 2001, the Space Odyssey among them, it certainly stands the test of time as one of the great works of Arthur C. Clarke and one of the great works of science fiction. You know, it's one of those stories you read and you, you kind of get into it and you're like, whoa, this is really interesting, you know. You have to look at the reaction you get as a reader to, to where he's taking you. Is, is it something that really makes you think? And, I, and even after all these years, if you read it and you read those final pages, those final paragraphs, you, you come away with a sense of awe, I think, at, at what the possibilities are. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you wrote the story today or somebody wrote the story today, and instead of placing the pyramid on the moon— if we placed it on one of the planets that's further out that we haven't yet visited, I mean, even if we put it as far away as Mars, which we haven't sent uh, a, a mission to with human beings on board, you put it there and we have the same sense of discovery and that same sense of awe, I think the story still works. There, there's not much about it that you would think, you know, it, it's, it's not going to sell or it, it's not going to evoke any kind of awe to contemporary readers. So that's pretty amazing that a story written in 1951 would still stand all of these years later if you just change a couple of little details to make it more contemporary. Yeah, and certainly looking at the structure of the story and how it's set up, I mean, there's nothing that's really that difficult to understand. I mean, there's some stories I think we're going to review later on where you're going to read it and go, what was this thing? And this story, <laughs> it's very... <laughs> and I think you know some of the stories I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. So, so this story, is it's very clear, it's very concise, it's short, and again, I feel it's a great introduction to the, the world of early science fiction, the world of golden age science fiction, and again, that's why we chose it as the, the first story to do on this podcast. Absolutely a fantastic representation of the kind of stuff that we are going to be talking about, or at least that we, that we hope to continue talking about on the series. So looking ahead, Dan, what do we have on deck as our next story? Well, again, we, you know, Arthur C. Clarke being one of the you know, prolific and amazing authors of science fiction, we're going to go to an even more prolific and amazing author of science fiction, even in Arthur C. Clarke's mind, because we're going to talk about Isaac Asimov, but it's a story you may or may not have ever heard of that he wrote. It's not very popular, but it is something that we thought had some interesting takes that we wanted to explore, and it's called The Dead Past. So make sure you come on back for that one, everybody. 